Hello and welcome to another Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts offer students and practitioners alike to dip into a series of professional policy issues in order to develop a broader understanding of how architecture and the construction industry works in practice. Today we're looking at planning legislation and who better to cast a wizened eye over the subject than Armin Taha, who's recently been thrust into the planning policy limelight with official criticism of his development in Clerkenwell in London. Indeed, here we are, sitting in the middle of a planning dispute. But before we dig into how you deal with planning matters at your practice, tell me a few snappy, interesting things about your education in architecture, how you set about becoming an architect. Uh, snappy, interesting um, um, anecdotes, I guess. Um, things that got me interested in architecture. Uh, well, uh, maybe when I... That wasn't meant to be a difficult question. I mean, that was the, that was the snappy, easy intro. You didn't start with snappy. You just said, why did you become an architect? That was your, that was your initial question. Uh, interesting anecdotes that might have... Um, got me further interested during the education process is, uh, you know, there's lots of those. Okay. Where do you want me to start? With a bit why I became an architect? Yeah, where did you, where did you study? Right. How did you become an architect? Okay. Why did you become an yeah, architect? Yeah, fair enough. Um, well, cliche is that um, first generation immigrants, my parents are super keen that we go and actually earn a living, a vocational job. Sure. They were doctors. And uh, they had a real strong moral uh, leaning towards uh, the, the good that medicine does. As I was interested in law, and they're absolutely um, uh, pushing me away from that. I certainly had interest in the sciences, a bit naive at the time, so sort of 14, 15, you're thinking that actually medicine is exactly how you perceive your parents are working. It doesn't look very satisfactory. So you're driving yourself towards um, something that you're interested in. At that time, I was also fascinated with architecture. I went to visit a number of architects who showed me anything from building BP petrol stations to repairing old churches. This is what you as a precocious teenager going to visit Well, I talked to your teachers at school are trying to then decide are you going towards the arts in terms of uh-huh. English literature and the, uh, or are you going to the sciences so they have to decide which, which classes they're going to you know, pigeonhole you in for the rest of your life <laughs> uh, so I had to break that mould because uh, if you want to do architecture and you're interested in still doing some of the arts that's very difficult for them because they want to shove you towards the science subjects or the arts subjects mm-hmm. uh, humanities so yeah, that was an early interest and kept on pursuing it. So where did you study? Studied um, in Edinburgh and um, uh, interesting anecdotes. Well, I'm trying to think of interesting anecdotes. Um, Maybe nothing interesting happened to you then, <laughs> in the early days. Let's <laughs> not label well, that's cruel, not the point. Cruel anecdotes, but I won't, yeah, there's no point. Oh, cruel anecdote, I like that, that sounds good. What's a cruel anecdote? Fascinating and cruel anecdote. Well, we had all sorts of interesting tutors. I mean, uh, I think it was, a, it, was a, it was a period where I think the only school of architecture in the country that was doing a unit-based system was the AA. So up to then, most schools were still, uh, I don't want to describe as autocratic, but we had a tutor uh, who, who has these thoughts in the entire school, if not the entire year, are following that, that system. Right, right. So you had no choice as a student. And uh, 
So you just followed it and imagine that at some point you'd be released from it and you'd be freer to investigate those areas that you, you feel worth investigating that you choose mine off. Um, I feel as if there's some kind of psychoanalytical trauma I'm putting you through. Uh, so do you want to move on to a, a happier time <laughs> in your life? Uh, maybe when you formed your own practice. When, when was that and how did that come about? Uh, you're, you're sort of right because actually even after you graduate you end up in practices that are off, you know, inevitably autocratic <laughs> because they've got their in-house style haven't they <laughs> and you go from one to the other and uh, yeah you'd be a fool to, to, to bring what you've learned from the other one into the new one in fact on several occasions I'm sure I had the words we don't do it like that here <laughs> whispered in my ear over my shoulder as I was sort of on the drawing board so yeah uh, setting up your own practice you release yourself, you shake off um, all those um, impositions so it was about 2001 or something 2001, over 2002 um, I've been been at Zaha's God bless her that time there was a practice of about 20 odd and uh, we had I think um what's now called Maxi, Fina in Germany, actually bringing fees in. The fees were, you know, rightly or wrongly, going mostly off to build models and uh, more exhibitions, and she toured them around the world, effectively becoming a marketing, getting more work for the office. Uh, so sometimes we'd go for about three months without getting paid, and, uh, and even when you did get the cheque, um, it was down by about 15% or thereabouts, and I actually thought, well, you know, if I'm going to work for nothing for three months and then still get pennies in, I might as well do it myself. So off I went, and uh, for the first um, first for, for year, the, for the listening was, audience, a dog has just arrived <laughs> for the pack of tiny feet. That's right. Uh, so the first year, I, I was part time. I think it was ten percent, going from ten percent to hundred percent of my own work, with the ninety percent uh, working at Muff. So with Liza Fior and others helping them, and, uh, and then by after about a year or so, it was pretty much all my own work and you know, okay, the rest is so, history. Yeah. So then it was Amitaha Architects. Then it became Group Work plus Amitaha, and now it's Group, group work. work. Yeah, exactly. So we had a transition. So the intention was always that uh, that we're all equal shareholders in one description or another. And uh, earlier, it was actually more difficult becoming an employee ownership trust. Our accountant kept on trying to dissuade us from it. But I think around about 2014, the coalition government changed the rules to encourage it more. Mm. So I think it was an, it was an American model. I think it's principally as a result, a result of lots of Silicon Valley successes where effectively all these young startups are then selling themselves to Google and others. And it was the idea to encourage more entrepreneurial startups uh, yeah. in architecture in other creative sort of industries I think it helps because those people who are involved in making that practice that creativity uh, often don't feel they're uh, despite the fact they're critically involved in the reputation of the practice they don't feel that they're critically uh, integrated into its uh, decision making or even ultimately its uh, benefits financial benefits if you like so the purpose of group work was to make it much easier for that to occur. Decision making as well as financially um, integrated and benefiting. So since you've been to a couple of iterations, is there anything that you would say to a new startup practice, something that you sh- you've done that maybe you shouldn't do? 
Um, I suppose if you if your intention is always to have uh, sort of equal shareholding, that's a, uh, a limited company without setting up the employee ownership trust first, because it becomes incredibly difficult to untie the shareholdings and then distribute those. So that's on a very practical level. Mm. Don't don't um, don't do it. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like like most um, as you described, wizened um, architects. The uh, if anybody, even a fourteen-year-old, is asking asking me today, I'd answer exactly the same way as the older architects used to answer me, which is just don't do it. It's a life of penury. You're always at the whim of um, of recessions. The first to go, the last to be sort of employed, and, and fees are terrible. Uh, so you'd only do it if your if your creative desires outweigh your financial desires. Right. Right. Uh, so similarly, if you go on your own, you've got those risks. It's not don't do it, it's more don't do it if you want riches. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. You said sitting in your lavish penthouse office. So what's your general approach to, to planning? Well, ultimately, it's, uh, architecture is about the design process. Uh, planning is, uh, uh, is a hurdle uh, that you have to take your design process through. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be dictating the design process at all. Uh, however, uh, certainly I'm not, I can't pinpoint at exactly what, when this occurred, but there is a, um, there's a, there's a structural disconnect between the architect's process driven by the architect's um, um, appointment uh, work stages and the planning process. So if you look at the work stages of an architect, the first uh, few, so the first 35%, which obviously includes the fees, how much they're paid to actually develop the design, uh, 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 take you up to planning submission. Now, planning submission uh, normally requires one to 100 level drawings, scale drawings. That's not a great deal of scale and detail, is there? Is it? Um, so, if you're in a conservation area, maybe one to fifty at the most. But even that is not a detail, construction, material coordination scale. So, in effect, you are at large once you submit an approval. Ten years ago, uh, a planning, a pre-application would have been phoning a case officer who was on a duty officer who was picking up the phone mm -hmm. that day maybe then followed up with a meeting around the table. It didn't cost anything, it could be conversational, you could do it with sketches, and uh, especially during that period, this is pre-financial crisis, especially during that period, there'd be actually senior case officers that had been there a while, and uh, if you've worked in that borough uh, long enough, often enough, they already know you by name, and by face, and reputation, and previous um, approvals and um, built work that you've done, so they trust you. Mm -hmm. Post-financial crisis, um, certainly pre-apps then became far more formal, so you're actually paying for them in advance. And in some boroughs now, the pre-app is actually the equivalent of a full application, because what they want to do is get the actual full application information correctly via the pre-app process, including all the meetings with design review panels, well before you've actually submitted the full application. Now, then when you do submit the full application, it can be determined within the um, the, the you know, the central government timeline, so they're not getting fined for late determinations, and approved, so they get a success as it were. So you're effectively doing all your work during the pre-app anyway. 
So those are the processes that you take uh, that you design through. Ultimately, always down to those individuals in the planning department. I'll give you a good example at the moment um, is Camden. Uh, so they've got a very, um, a very well structured method where from the beginning you pay your pre-app fees, you go through all those design review panels with other architects, peers, etc. And one of our schemes, which is entirely critical on its detailing, they asked in advance for the client to pay for a sample, that's a one-to-one -one physical sample, not after the approval, but actually in advance. So during the pre-app process, to be installed on site to test whether that material is actually what we promise it to be. So that was paid for, installed, every, to everyone's satisfaction, enabling that approval to go ahead reasonably um, successfully without, without any trouble. There are other boroughs... So that's, that's dealing with the conditions in advance? Oh, that's dealing with, yeah, essentially what would normally have been post-approval, but, but pre-commencement conditions mm -hmm. in advance of actually its full submission disastrous example for us at the moment. One of those senior planners that, that we've known since we started our practice, in fact on the very first project, we, we standalone project we did, that case officer dealt with this project, saw it successfully through its various approvals, but then retired. As a result of that, the new case officers that arrived, um, or the new officers that are involved in the enforcement notice, they're struggling to find his original information. They, they obviously don't know his rationale for, for giving the approvals and therefore are left guessing and a consequence um, uh, their guesswork led to an enforcement notice, which which are sort of cleaning up now. We'll come, guess, we'll, yeah. we'll come on to that. We'll come on to that. Right, let me just read this out. Uh, from from the guidance. So it says local authorities, local planning authorities should approve development proposals that fit in with statutory plans unless, quote, adverse impacts of allowing development would significantly and demonstrably outweigh the benefits when assessed against the policies of the National Planning Policy Framework. So there's guidance there, but how do you deal with that? It's not exactly a factual, no, scientific no, assessment. No, no, no. It's a pretty quite vague... Yeah. So if, you, if you're on the continent applying for planning, it's, it is almost scientific. There are mathematical formulas telling you how big your building can be, how tall, mm -hmm. wide. They're all mathematical products. But if you shorten it in plan, it gets a little bit deeper in plan or taller balconies and all the rest of it. It's then uh, how you dress it, what it looks like. It's almost up to you. Very rarely will subjective planning officers get involved in, in, in that sort of decision. Why here? Uh, because policies are left perhaps deliberately vague to allow you to maximise what you can possibly do on various sites. There is some subjectivity that comes into it and because, especially more recently with David Cameron coming into power, so his government brought in the idea of localism, which meant there was more influence from people who actually live in the neighbourhood it's no longer just case officers, but it's actually neighbours then that can, you know, immediate neighbours that can then influence councillors who can then influence the decision-making process. And so where you should be getting an approval, because planning policies suggest you should, if there's enough subjective opinion against it, councillors will vote that down, despite the fact that it's clearly uh, should be approved under policy, in the knowledge that the, uh, the, um, the applicant will go to appeal 
and probably win on appeal, and then they can at least turn around to their constituents and hold their hands up and say, well, I tried my best, I voted it down, but central government overruled me. So they feel safe in, the, in their seat, as it were, come next election. That sounds like an interesting analogy of David Cameron's connection with this democratic process, doesn't it, on wider issues? Uh, so the general rule in the national planning policy framework is that there's a presumption in favour of sustainable development. So, again, mm-hmm. do you... Do you end up tailoring things to suit that, to get things through? How how has that affected you at all? Not at all. I mean, the reality is that most uh, construction nowadays, it's very easy to pick out of it the sustainable advantages, uh, and therefore your planning consultant will, or even your sustainability consultant, who's effectively your mechanical engineer, uh, who's already coordinating everything, will add various pages explaining why this building is more sustainable than others in the past, or that's enough. That ticks the box. Uh, Okay, so moving on from the hallowed territory of the planning case officer, move on to the planning committee. Mm. So again, I presume Mm. you've had Mm. uh, an interesting experience of those committees. So how do they work and how, how have you found them? So, uh, in the past, I mean, planning committees are effectively councillors. So, councillors elected in the local borough who have expressed an interest in the planning, in planning and buildings and construction, and therefore are sat on a committee. And the idea is that they can um, uh, represent the local constituents in any application that comes in. Now, in the past, it used to be major applications, so significant development. And the idea was no longer would there be top-down clearing of whole um, roads and communities and replacement with large estates from central government or even councillors, but actually the local community would have a say in whether they wanted to be um, cleared and rehoused, as it were, which makes sense. Nothing would then go to committee unless enough of the local community asked for it to go there. And that normally, in the past, used to mean, say, 25 people writing in saying, we would like you to represent us and have, have a say in whether this thing should get approval or not. That threshold eventually has come down to five people writing in. And not only that, but actually relates to anything. It could be your, your dormer window, conservatory a gazebo in the back garden of a conservation area, if enough neighbours complain and write to the councillor, then it will go to committee. And if that councillor feels like, uh, well, enough people have written in and, um, and uh, my seat might look unsafe, you know, I'm already on the threshold, I might lose five votes which um, allow another councillor to come in, he'll vote against it and allow it to go to appeal the knowledge, as I said earlier, that um, central government will um, give it its approval, give the gazebo the approval. <laughs> Democracy in practice. Absolutely. Well, you yeah, know, that's how it goes. But, but if you move on from that, I guess we have to talk about enforcement notices. You, you raised it before. So whether you want to talk about this in a generic way or specific to, yeah, uh, yeah. to your, your yeah. moment, uh, do you want to tell us about maybe how... How it worked. How do you find out about the enforcement? How did you find out? About yeah. That? Well, uh, enforcement notices are entirely in the gift of the local authority. So, similar to planning, if somebody decides, a neighbour decides they don't like the look of what's just been built, they can write to an enforcement officer or their local council or a planning department saying, "Please take enforcement action." There'll be an investigation. 
Ideally, the enforcement officer is in complete, um, is hand in glove with the planning department. That is, he will go to the information that he can find in the paper files or the online file and ensure in his investigation that either this thing has been built to exactly what, uh, what, what it's got approval for or it hasn't. Then decide with planners whether, if it hasn't, whether that merits an enforcement notice or not, or whether it merits a minor amendment, a non-material amendment, uh, or a material amendment application. Here, uh, our scaffolding is removed and the stone uh, load-bearing structure is revealed. And one of our neighbours, who actually is the... Um, uh, shall remain nameless. Well, who shall remain nameless. Sends me an email complaining that a stone, or his, uh, his initial email, uh, a concrete monstrosity has gone up instead of a brick building that he expected. And uh, being polite to the neighbour, we actually organise a meeting, explain to him how we've gone from brick to stone via another application by delegated powers, and got it all signed off, etc. After about three or four uh, more emails, and a couple of months go past, he's still insisting it should be brick, and I'm a bit bemused. And then he actually says, I've looked online, and I can only see a brick building. I, I, I hadn't occurred to me at all to look online for the past uh, preceding uh, couple of years since we got our approval and actually built it. But I looked online as well, and he was correct. There was actually, it's not even an approve, approval set of drawings. It's actually the first design and access statement of a brick design we submitted, so it's not even the final approved brick version. But I shrugged my shoulders and thought, well, it's not really anything to do with me, it's just the planning department will one day upload this information if they wish to, because ultimately there's a file, a paper file with all that information in there. And if you're really interested, what used to happen in the past is you, you write to them, they make the paper file available, you go into a room and you use a photocopier if you want to take copies of it. Yeah. And hand it back. So I ignored it all. And about, I think it was about six months later, I got an enforcement notice saying, you have built um, you know, a hideous monstrosity that uh, bears no relation to the brick building you've got approval for. Um, you know, completely surreal, given that we've had approval for it. So I thought, well, I better start taking this seriously. And I hired a planning solicitor who wrote to them ask them for the, the report that goes along with any enforcement notice and by which authority, in other words, which council has met uh, on what evidence and made that decision. Well, no report was issued, became evident. Uh, no minutes of any meetings with councillors uh, were sent to us, but the notice was actually withdrawn immediately. Uh, so we made the assumption, well, they've obviously found the information then that we did get approved for a stone building. That seemed to be, to be the end of that. I actually asked for, uh, for a meeting with uh, the enforcement officer and anybody else involved in that decision-making process to get to the bottom of it, because it was obviously um, uh, stressful, <laughs> bizarre, surreal, the whole lot. And at that meeting, I managed to get hold of the various delegated reports that the case officer at that time had written, presented them, and um, to my amazement, uh, none of the people there, so that's planning and enforcement, had seen it. Uh, and there is, um, it's all written in black and white, it's uh, a stone building, the materials have been signed off by various uh, conservation officers, it's got their initials and names and the team leaders have signed it off. And some of those people were actually at the meeting, because uh, I asked whose initials are these, 
and they put their hand up and I thought, well, I, I find it amazing that you have signed it off. It says here that you've seen the materials in stone, you've signed it off, but you allow an enforcement notice to go out saying demolish, replace and brick. And everybody was fairly quiet, not wanting to, <laughs> to I guess, implicate themselves. But he did uh, confess that uh, he had signed it off in stone and um, it's seen photographs, not the physical materials. So where are we at now then? Oh, well, um, that was the end of that. And I thought, well, that's the relief. But then nine months after that, I got another notice saying, demolish anyway. Yes, we concede we gave you approval, but demolish anyway, because we hadn't realized that you were using um, fossils in the, in, the, in the stone. We thought it was just plain stone. We think the fossils are all ugly. That's uh, deleterious to the conservation area. So yet again, I had asked them at the end of that meeting, if you had any doubts, any more questions about anything, come to me. Unfortunately, in, before they'd actually withdrawn that notice, that first notice, uh, the councillor who'd sort of backed this enforcement notice, because it takes a councillor to do it, they'd actually gone to the local press and the architectural press stating that it should be brick. And he, as a architectural technologist, had witnessed the building go up the stone didn't hold up the building. In fact, it was fake. And then even the fossils that are um, in, the, uh, in the stone, he had witnessed being carved in. It's a completely insane, ludicrous um, suggestions. So there's a lot of egg on his face, a lot of egg on the enforcement officer's faces. So I can only imagine that after they withdrew it, they were under pressure to demonstrate that they weren't wholly wrong, yeah. incompetent. <laughs> and issued another one, this time saying, okay, yes, we gave you approval on stone, but we never realised there were fossils in it and it's ugly. So the question obviously got raised, are you telling us that you've never had any information on the materials, the fossils, etc.? Absolutely none. It's all a horrible shock to us. So we're back to, to you know, facing demolition. Interestingly, last week, uh, online, they've uploaded um, information they found showing the stone elevations and photographs of materials we'd sent showing the fossils. Stone columns and beams, how rough they were in terms of fossils and the rest of it. Has the enforcement notice been withdrawn? No. So at this moment in time, is it still hanging on you? It's still, it's still hanging, yeah. So. But are you feeling more confident? Or you think that, I mean, well, do you think the planning process at this stage in this game is fair and reasonable? Or no, there no, there's something, there's something, there's obviously something very wrong in, um, in allowing for it to be possible that an enforcement officer and or counsellor who might be getting hold of um, limited information, the wrong information, might have the wrong motivations, might even have the right motivations, but somehow together contrive and send out an enforcement notice that actually costs a great deal of money to appeal and fight where they've had no, um, no responsibility on costs. It's very easy for somebody to, to write a notice and send it out. Then the borough has to defend that in the appeal, so that might cost ultimately hundreds of thousands of pounds with barristers and all the rest of it. But it's the borough that's picking up the, um, the um, cost absorbed in its you know, billion pound budget bill. And you're picking up your cost? I'm obviously having to pay, pay yeah. up my yeah. costs in one way or another. And then, um, you know, should I win? Uh, I have to claim that money back off the borough. Sure, sure. Uh, if they were far more careful with that, that cost because they took direct responsibility for it one way or another, I suspect they'd look harder for the information, proper evidence, and then realise, whoops, we've made a mistake. Yeah. There yeah. is no evidence saying that this building yeah, didn't yeah, have yeah. approval. 
Do I understand that the local authority might have an internal inquiry regardless of what happens in the story and yeah. work out what processes they could implement in the future to make sure that it's above board? Yeah. But throwing it back at you, have mm. you developed a paranoid mentality where you know, in, in, in applications in future yeah. you would do yeah. things differently? Yeah, no, because uh, what we're finding is uh, those senior case officers, very, uh, some boroughs, just, they don't exist for very long. Uh, they're often... Um, fairly junior staff and sometimes they're actually even moved about quite regularly from one part of the borough to the other, rotated, uh, which basically means your relationship with them, well you can't establish a long term relationship with them. Maybe they're doing that for all sorts of reasons, good motivations, but what it does mean is that you can't rely on somebody actually understanding your motivations behind not just drawings but written information and if that isn't absolutely super clear and somebody else coming to it will interpret it differently, make errors, and challenge it. Yeah. It's open to challenge. So how on earth do you deal with that? Well, you know, dare I say the easiest way is generic produced architecture where it's so generic you can't make an error. It's so woolly. It's, it's, um, yeah, no, I understand that. But are you telling me that you have the approved information that the council is saying that they don't have memory of? You mean this building? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, ultimately, we could not have, because uh, we had to go for funding yeah. to get this building built. Yeah. And we had to provide for that, the approval documents, the approved drawings, all of that sort of business, uh, which then the funding bank solicitors, yeah. even the contractor, who then has to go through his own funding during the construction period, his solicitors. And it was actually the contractor's searches and their solicitors that helped us the most. Because we don't keep everything on our records uh, and we certainly don't go into the planning file and find all the delegated internal reports. Normally we just keep the approval application and our own drawings and that's it. But actually the contractors, uh, funders, their solicitors and the contractor have done their own searches before starting so they could get their funding. No, I understand. I understand. Yeah. So that's a search. Right? What I'm saying is, is that in the future would you yeah, then say, right, right what I've learned from this example is yeah. I'm going to keep everything, right? in terms of, even in terms of photographs and materials that we send to the planning. To right, well, we do, we do, we, every information that we send out and get stamped and approved, we keep anyway. But interestingly, it's, yeah, it's probably useful now to, to ask for even delegated reports, the stuff that never normally gets published. Because normally delegated reports never, are never uploaded. They're just kept internally because it's just internal conversations as well. Yeah including notes. So I think, yeah, it's highly useful to do that. Um, that or um, you can effectively subcontract that responsibility by hiring a planning consultant and then it's their responsibility. <laughs> so yeah. on this project, it's in the past, my advice to clients was anything of a certain scale, don't bother using a planning consultant. Um, but obviously now I'd rather just hand that responsibility over to a planning consultant. Is this Dragging you down in a morass of yeah, despondency, sort of, yeah, or are you? Yeah, there's a bit of despondency and morass. Yeah. <laughs> knee deep in morass. <laughs> Did I say knee deep? I think above nose. But you're above but you but you have project on you. Yeah, there's projects. Project. It could always be busier. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, no, always no. end on a high, as we say. <laughs> that was Armin Taha. This is Austin Williams. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Professional Practice Podcasts. And good luck, everyone. <laughs>